0: Um, the title I've given the message is Pilgrim's Progress, uh, because I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, what we are doing as Christians and in, in pilgrims on this earth in seeking to make progress and seeking to grow this walk uh, that we endeavor to walk here on earth. Um, you know, New Year's is kind of a, a good time to reflect, isn't it? I, you know, I'm not a really a big fan of New Year's resolutions necessarily. Because honestly, I believe that if there's a change that needs to be made, it's now's a good time to make it rather than waiting till New Year or rather than uh, saving up for New Year. Uh, there's always, always the best time to make changes or to make progress is that moment. But it's a good reminder. And I've actually honestly become more and more a fan of it, uh, lately in recent years than I used to be just because we need reminders. I realize that I myself need reminders. I need milestones. I need some sort of marker to go, Here's an opportunity to reflect. And so this study tonight is, is one that I want to encourage you to look back on, on, on this last year, on 2016, and take inventory. Um, so one of the first things that, that we're going to talk about is take inventory on your life. Take a look at what has God done, first of all. What has he done this last year? Recognize his faithfulness. Recognize where he's brought you. But then also take a look at our own lives, to look at our walk with the Lord. Have we grown? How have we grown? What has God done in our lives, through our lives? Or perhaps in looking back in this last year, we might be a little bit disappointed or a little bit frustrated looking and going, you know what, I don't think I've really made any progress. I'm trying to find it and I'm not finding it. And realizing that perhaps some things need to change if progress is going to be made, if we're going to grow. But to take a real look at that. One of the things I've come to realize about life is Life is a lot like Facebook in some ways. You ever go on Facebook with a clear intention to do something, like contact somebody or share something, and then three hours later you have no idea what the heck you're doing? You ever notice that? You're on there, time just kind of gets sucked into this wormhole, and you're following all of these distractions and these interesting things people post, and then you get caught up in some debate, and you're, and you're you know, arguing back and forth about whether or not Trump is of the devil... And, you know, you're going all over the place and you get all sucked in and distracted and you forget what in the world you're doing. Um, And life can be a lot like that. We kind of react to to life, don't we? We kind of go day by day in survival mode sometimes and we do our work, we come to church, we have our our, uh, traditions, we have our methods, we have the things that we do, our, our habits, and we just kind of plug along without really purposefully figuring out, well, what am I doing anyway? What am I trying to accomplish? What has God called me to? And, you know, God has something unique and powerful for each of us. I know for me in my own life, uh, there's been those times where I've had to kind of snap out of it and realize, get out of that Facebook daze and go, what am I doing anyway? What is God trying to do in my life? Where is he taking me? Am I paying attention? Am I living on purpose or am I just reacting to life and letting the enemy rob me of time? precious time that we have here and so seeing as we have just come out of the new year i thought it fitting it's something that's been on my heart something god's been challenging me with and i wanted to encourage you in the same manner my family and i have a bit of a tradition that we uh, each year at new year's we do sit down we have a little family meeting and we purposely take the time to look back on the on the last year and talk about what happened anyway this year and usually it's, it's almost always the same. as funny because the first few minutes is kind of quiet. We all sit around like, what did happen this year? You know, And you try and think of what went on. And then people start remembering and start talking about, oh, yeah, we lost. My, our Aunt, Aunt Sue died and then our great-grandma died. And then, and then God provided this for us when we needed it. And, and all of these things happen, and things start coming up. We start remembering all that God did in our lives this last year. And we realize how much we've forgotten, how much we've failed to thank him for, how, much we, how many lessons that maybe God has been trying to teach us, and we just kind of skipped over it and we're repeating the cycle. But we've found how valuable it is. And our kids have come to look forward to it. matter of fact, uh, my daughter reminded me as we were getting up to New Year's about it, asking if we were going to do it again. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we need to make sure and make the time for that. We get so busy. And it was cool to see how they're thinking of how we need to do this. Uh, but it's a, become a kind of a family tradition for us to make sure and do that. And so we, we do two things. We take inventory of the last year and we thank God for what he's done. We look at what some things maybe we've learned, but then we look at the coming year and we go, how can we live more purposefully in God's will this coming year? What do we want to work on? And we each kind of go around and share, well, um, you know, what, here's what, I, here's what I, I would like to see happen in this coming year. Here's what I'm going to work on. And, you know, for me, I would share with them uh, how I want to lead the family better, or what i 'm going to endeavor to do to invest more in them or to uh, to raise them up or to be a better example or some things that we 're working on, and so we do those two things we reflect on god 's faithfulness and what's what 's been done over the last year, and then we look ahead and attempt to live more purposefully as pilgrims on this earth and so that 's what this study is about is is walking by faith, walking this Christian walk here on earth and And just sort of take an inventory. I want to sort of kick it off with uh, 1 Samuel 7. Uh, If you want to turn there, you can look at the story. We're not going to really read it thoroughly. And actually, I think Mike touched on the Ebenezer stone um, in his study. And that's something I was planning on touching on as well. But if you're familiar with this story, back in 1 Samuel 6 and 7 and 8, there's a story about how the Ark of the Covenant was with the Philistines for a while. The Philistines had stolen it, and then they began, uh, God brought plagues on them, and they began suffering great sores and all these things because they had the Ark of the, of the Lord. And so they're figuring out, well, how do we get rid of this? How do we make it right by this fearsome God that is punishing us for having this Ark? And after um, receiving some advice on what to do, and they obeyed it, and they sent the Ark out, and it went uh, to a town Uh, And and the Israelites, and they rejoiced, and they grabbed up the ark, and they were not honoring the Lord in how they did it. They didn't follow God's law in how to treat the ark because it represented God's presence and his holiness. And 50,000 people in Israel died because of mishandling the ark of the Lord. 50,000 people. And so they're terrified. They don't know what to do. And so uh, you know, Samuel the prophet is the one ruling at this time. They end up bringing it up to Eliezer's house and consecrating it there and consecrating him to be the official protector and watcher of this. And nobody wants anything to do with it because they're afraid. They're they're in fear of this holy God that just punished them because of not respecting who he is and the laws he set up. And that stayed there for 20 years. 20 years. Uh, God's presence, in essence, represented by the ark, is, is at this person's house, at Eliezer's house. And then finally, after that time, they realized that they've... The reason that they've been missing this presence of the Lord and been able to have the Ark in their center of worship is because they've been caught up in the in the ways of the world around them. They've been worshiping idols. They've been uh, following the ways of the people around them. They've been intermingling. They've just completely neglected the things God had called them to do. And so Samuel uh, seeks the Lord and offers a sacrifice. And they bring the Ark. They they go to bring the Ark down from Eleazar's house. And the Philistines see an opportunity to attack the Israelites at that time when they're bringing the ark down. And so the Philistines come up against Israel to wipe them out. And at this point, they cry out to the Lord for help. They go, God, help us. Uh, you know, and they're caught right between this, this place of fearing the Almighty God and, and that, that sense of being in the hands of an angry God. You've heard that saying that fear of, of His wrath and desperately needing His help. And it's an amazing story. I love this story because it's a perfect picture of the salvation journey. Because before we're saved, what do we have to look forward to? The wrath of God, right? That's all that we have to know God with. That's our relationship with him is to experience his judgment, his wrath, his holiness, and the bad end of that. But when we receive his grace and mercy, when we obey, when we receive uh, faith and we put our trust in him, Suddenly we go from being at enmity in his enemies, essentially in the subjects, objects of his wrath, to being at peace with God, as it says. In Romans 5, 1, it says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so we see in this story, long story short, that God delivers them from the Philistines. He sends us thunder, confuses them, and they're able to drive the Philistines out and have, and have victory. And so Samuel... In Samuel 7, verse 12, it says he takes a stone and he sets it up in Mizpah and Shin. And he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And Ebenezer literally means stone of help. So the reason I bring this story up as a starting point is, all throughout the Old Testament we see that there are these monuments that are put up by Jacob, by Abraham, by Moses, by Joshua, at various times throughout Israel's history, they put up these stones or these monuments. Why? Because they're, they know they're forgetful and they need to remember and they need to pass on to the next generation what God has done, who God is to them. He's not their enemy. He's not just a source of wrath. He is their deliverer. He is, he is the one who wants to rescue them and, and, and bring about great blessing and salvation for the world through them. But this, this Ebenezer stone was meant to be a monument to remind what the Lord had done that day in delivering them from the Philistines, and for us it's symbolic. I the reason I again I bring this story up is because I want to challenge you to look back at what your Ebenezer stones are this last year. Look back and think what were some milestones that God has brought me through? Not only this last year, but even in my life. Looking back, sometimes we feel like we haven't grown, or God hasn't has been silent, and we haven't heard from Him. But when we stop and think for a minute and really take a, take a measurement of what God's done, we suddenly see these, these monuments, these milestones in our lives. Oh yeah, I remember when God answered this prayer or when, when God got us through this difficult time or God uh, showed us to move here when we wanted to move here or God you know did this and we have the, all of these Ebenezer stones in our lives. And I want to encourage you to take the time, sit down and think about those. Write them down or just to discuss them and share them with somebody because it's meant... We, we need those things to remind us of who God is in our lives. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, first of all, step one, to think of what your Ebenezer stones are. And we're going to spend most of the night in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14, going through chapter 4. And this is really a passage exhorting Timothy all about what it means to be a Christian, to be a member of God's church to walk this walk of faith. And so we're going to learn from what Paul's exhortations to Timothy are as we're talking about being pilgrims and making progress. What does that look like and how can we learn from this letter to Timothy? So if you will join me, let's pray before we get into Timothy. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would challenge us this evening as well as encourage us how good it is to live not just a mediocre life, but a life with purpose and with passion. God, you're passionate about us. You sent your Son to die for us. Lord, as that movie is appropriately named, The Passion of Christ, Lord, you are not wishy-washy or half-hearted in your thoughts towards us. You're wholehearted in your love for us. And I pray that we would respond in kind as we seek to live for you, not just in ministry As it's called, but in everything we do, as your word says, that we would do all with all of our hearts as unto you. So, Lord, help us to learn from this passage and speak to each of us where we need to be spoken to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul's writing a letter to young Timothy. He's a young pastor and teacher, and he's uh, been charged with overseeing this church in Ephesus. And we're going to pick up in first timothy 3 verse 14 and this part in uh, chapter 3 is actually kind of the introduction to the main portion of what we're going to study tonight chapter 4 is really what we're going to dive into and look at but chapter 3 starting in verse 14 sets a good intro and if you remember i'm sure you know originally when these letters were written they weren't divided by chapters and verses it was just a letter and so sometimes the thought flows really nicely from the previous chapter to the following in reading the context and understanding why Paul is writing what he's writing. So picking up in verse 14, it says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So Paul starts right off. And, and, and the reason I wanted to give this introduction is he gives this purpose for writing the whole letter. He takes a break from all this instruction he's giving Timothy, all this advice, all these, all these things, these pointers that he's trying to give him. And he, says, he stops for a second and says, this is why I'm writing. Why am I writing you this letter? Pay attention. Well, here's why. I'm writing so people ought to know how to conduct themselves in God's household. What does it mean to live as a Christian, to live as a child of God, as a believer, in those days. That's why I'm writing this. And he has a sense of urgency. You notice he says here, if I'm, he says, I'm writing to you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves. In other words, he said he wanted to say it in person. He wanted to go and visit Timothy and talk to him face to face. But this is so important. He didn't want to wait till that happened. He didn't know when that was going to be able to happen. And this couldn't wait. This instruction couldn't wait. It was urgent that Timothy got this information, this message that God had given to Paul for Timothy. He says, I'm not going to wait till I come. I'm going to write this just in case I'm delayed. And he says that people ought to know how to conduct themselves. In this following chapter, as we go through, he's going to really dive into what this means, how people ought to conduct themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. So let's break this down a little bit. So we know that the household, when it says God's household, he kind of clarifies it all for us right here. He, when he says God's household, he doesn't leave it at that. And leave us wondering, well, is he just talking about that, that building? Or is he talking about the synagogue? Is he talking about a particular church building that they talked about? When you walk through those doors and you're in God's house, this is how you're supposed to act. No, he goes on to clarify which is the church of the living God. Well, who's, what's the church? We know what the church is, right? Come on, guys. Us, right? We are the church. So we know he's not talking about a building here, right? He's not talking about a location. The pillar and the foundation of truth. He's talking about us. Truth has been defined as the explanation that most accurately corresponds with reality. You know, Pilate asked that famous question, what is truth? You know, and we have the truth right here. God's word is the foundation of truth. Jesus himself is the word of God and the living word. And we're meant to follow and live out his example. So in that manner, we are the truth, that point of truth in this world. He says we're a pillar and foundation of truth. The word pillar refers to a support post, but it also throughout scripture refers to a monument or something that gives direction. Back in Exodus 13, if you remember the uh, pillar of fire, and the pillar and the cloud, and those things were for what purpose? To direct the children of Israel as they went on their journey so they wouldn't get lost. It was what they looked to for guidance. And all throughout, uh, we look at, we talked about the Ebenezer stone, but we also, there's pillars that are set up, these stone pillars throughout the Old Testament that were meant to be markers of, uh, for places of worship or places where God had done something special. He says, that's what we're like. We're like those pillars. So not only are pillars in our own lives meant to be a reminder of what God has done, but we have to remember that we are actual pillars to the world. The world looks at us as those pillars that point to who God is, to set that standard, to be that light. Revelation 3.12 talks a little bit about this idea as well. Revelation three verse twelve says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. In the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any, anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And so, being a core aspect of God's temple, we know that also God's Word talks about us, our bodies themselves, being the temple of the Holy Spirit. He also goes on to say, We're not only a pillar, but a foundation, quite literally the basis from which truth is derived. So this is a pretty tall order for the church, isn't it? This is a pretty this is a pretty big expectation for what we're supposed to conduct ourselves like. He says this is the underlying foundation of how we're to conduct ourselves, the pillar and foundation of truth for the world. Wow. That's that's a pretty that's a pretty tough thing to live up to. But we have the perfect example, don't we? We have Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one that, if we follow him, we know we can't go wrong. If we use his words, if we walk in his ways, we can't mess it up. We still do sometimes, but, but that's, that's the awesome thing, is we do know what we are to do. We are given clear example and clear instruction here. We have the Bible, as it said, our basic instructions before leaving earth, Right? So, going on in verse 16, it says, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. This is the uh, NASB version. It says, He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among nations, was believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Um, So, this actually, this verse is thought to have been uh, like a creed of the early church or perhaps a hymn a piece of a hymn or a song that they used to sing that basically sums up the gospel and who Christ is. That he appeared in the flesh. He came as God and fully God and fully man, vindicated or justified by the Spirit. In other words, he was perfect. He was holy in all of his ways, seen by angels, preached among nations, believed on in the world and taken up into glory. So the summary of sort of the gospel message here. It's interesting that, having just mentioned truth and being a foundation for truth at the churches, he talks about, right in the same breath, how great the mystery of godliness is. So on one hand, he has this sort of this established truth that we're supposed to represent and walk by, and yet he goes on to say, but it's a great mystery. It's something we almost can't understand. And we know that throughout the New Testament, the word mystery, speaking of the gospel and godliness, is quite frequently mentioned the great is the mystery of the gospel or the great is the mystery of godliness you know and it is interesting when we think about it because it's not something the finite mind can understand you think about why would god do any of this really why would he bother uh, with making us godly i mean what a tough task does that is i mean really think about it how much work are we quite a bit i don't know about you but i've i've had to learn the same lesson several times you know and it's kind of like training up children. I know um, when i when I teach my kids things there's like projects recently uh, leading up to winter. how many of you did some wood chopping and stacking? I know I did some of that, and uh, you know my um, my son Caleb is just getting to the point where he can wield an axe and stack wood and, and make himself useful in that way and uh, you know so I started teaching him how to do it properly, how to do it safely, giving him some little. Uh, little uh, uh, logs to work on chopping. And man, it took a while. <laughs> it took some time. It took some effort. Uh, it, it took quite a bit of time to split that one log. Uh, but you know what? He finally got it, and he learned it, and he's, and he's developing and growing in it. It would have been a whole lot faster if I had done it. It would have been a whole lot faster if I said, oh, just forget it, right? But you know what? I love to teach my son things. I love to see him grow up, and I want him to learn some things that will be valuable in the future, And our God, I think he sees us in a similar way. He loves to invest in us and to have a relationship with us. But this also tells us a bit about our God, is that he's a creator, and he loves to create and continue to create. Yes, he made creation, but he's continually involved in our lives, making us more like him, making us godly, this mystery of godliness. That's a part of his creative process, of him working in us and growing us. It speaks a lot about his nature, to me, the fact that he bothers with us this way, this mystery of godliness, the fact that he even bothers with it. uh, It shows us that his nature is one of of a creator, and that he just loves to have a relationship with us and know us, for us to know him. That's part of his heart. It gives us insight into who he is, and though we don't understand it, though it is still a mystery for our finite minds, how great it is to know what kind of God we serve, because he even bothers to do this, that he works in this way. You know, I think when it comes to mystery, when it comes to understanding not only God's ways in our lives, but also how God works through us and what we can know about God himself, about his plan, the more that we study, the more that we research, I think, the more we grow a wise person once said, the more that you know, the more you know you don't know, right? And, and I think I've come to know that to be very true for myself. As I've gone further in my journey with the Lord and, and sought Him out more and more, I, I've become more and more aware of the vastness of what I don't know. How much there really is that I don't understand and quite frankly, I won't understand. I, and there 's been things i've had to come to terms with going you know i 'm not going to get this i 'm just not it doesn 't make sense to me or i can 't understand it i can 't fathom it, but that 's why he 's God that 's part of what makes the, the that verifies the fact that he 's god i 'm not his ways are beyond my ways, his ways are higher than my ways, as his word says, but some things we know for sure, and in going on to read through chapter four we 're going to be exhorted to hang on to certain truths. And there are things that we, do, though there is much we don't know, there is much we do know. There are things that we can hold fast to about God and about who He is. Romans 1 tells us that just in creation, His invisible attributes are clearly seen in the things He has made. God's Word itself is miraculous. And we could talk all night about God's miraculous Word. It's prophetic evidence, it's internal evidence, manuscriptural evidence, archaeological evidence, all the things that make God's Word far and above any other work of literature in all of human history. Nothing comes close to God's word. That We can compare what we have here on the iPad and in in your laps there to the the scrolls that were written way before Christ was even walking, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We can compare the book of Isaiah and much of the Old Testament and go, you know, it hasn't changed. We haven't had to revise it and modify it because it was full of errors. There is nothing to modify or update it was perfect when it was first written. We know it was God breathes. We have the miraculous all around us in looking at the changed lives. We look at what God has done in the lives of people we know, in our own lives. So there is much that we know that we can hold fast to. But first Corinthians reminds us, first Corinthians two fourteen reminds us that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. One of the things we have to remember is that unless someone is in the spirit, they're ultimately not going to understand the things of God. This is a spiritual thing. It's not a knowledge thing. It's not a head thing. It's a spiritual thing. Understanding and growing in this mystery of godliness. So we're going to move on here to chapter 4. And he's going to take us through a variety of doctrine about living a godly life, a fruitful life, about paying attention to how we walk and again i think this is perfect for new year's meditation to to read through this to study this and and really ask ourselves am i walking and growing in the things of the lord am i walking and growing in the things that the lord has called me to be it my job or whatever else i do raising my family what I do at church. Um, There's every aspect of our lives, we're told as Christians, that our identity carries over into everything, doesn't it? How we do our work honors God or doesn't honor God. How we relate to people when we're in town honors God or doesn't honor God. How we shop for Christmas presents honors God or doesn't honor God. Um, How we deal with Flatlanders either honors God or doesn't honor God, right? It's not just about reading the Bible and prayer, and coming to church service. This whole idea of growing in the Lord isn't just about our prayer time and our reading of the Word. Do you understand that? It's about how, how we do our daily lives. It's about pursuing the, the gifts and talents God's given us out in the world. How we go about that is what determines whether we're walking in holiness and as children of God or not. Whether it's leading worship, or it's swinging a hammer, or working at a hospital, or working a fire line, or whatever it may be. How we do that, and for whom we do that, by the manner in which we do it, that's growing in Christ. That's walking as a child of God. And so, we're going to start here in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and see what exhortation Paul is giving to Timothy. And this applies, I think, very well to our lives now. And there's a lot here, quite honestly. We're going to skim over some things and move pretty quickly through this chapter. Uh, There's a lot that we could study. Just a couple of these verses we could spend all night on or do a series on. But I'm looking to get more of an overview of the Christian walk. We're looking to kind of go through this and just kind of get through the chapter and get an overview of what does our walk look like? What are we trying to accomplish? What has God called us to? And what are some key things we can hone in on to live more purposefully in the Lord? Chapter uh, 4, verse 1 it says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. How many of you know and believe we're in those latter days? We are in the latter days. This is, this is the latter days. This is it. We see so much of prophecy so clearly fulfilled. Uh, much of what God has, has said must happen has happened. Uh, and though we do not know the day or the hour, when exactly it will come, we're just kind of waiting. God's, God is is patient and long-suffering, and praise him for that. But you know what? It could be today. We are in the last times. And so, first of all, he starts off by challenging Timothy, knowing, hey, this is what's coming. And he knew that, hey, after... All that remains really is Christ's second coming, and it's over. So the time between Christ's first coming and second coming really qualifies in many ways as the latter times. But he's telling telling Timothy, listen, you've got to teach the church, you've got to teach God's people that in the last times, these are things that are going to be prevalent. This is what to watch out for, deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Many will abandon the faith because of these things. You know, I personally know people who have. I know people who've gotten caught up in both crazy doctrines and ran after those things and got all caught up in some really weird um, cults. And I know people who have completely said, you know what, I'm an atheist, forget it. People I've been on mission trips with. People that I've served in ministry with growing up in high school. People that I took on a mission trip from this church that are now out... uh, um, you know, supporting Planned Parenthood and joining in uh, gay pride parades, and and completely walked away from the Lord. And it blows my mind how they got so deceived. And as we read on here, we're gonna learn a little bit more about that and how that happens. But it says, deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. There's these little lies and these these bends of truth. And you know, one of the things that I've seen that's a common danger for Christians is to get caught up in studying the lie rather than the truth. Have you ever caught yourself doing that or seen that? Where people, um, you know, you're studying for us. Evolution versus creation. There's a a classic example. I myself have fallen into that trap a little bit of getting so obsessed with studying the science of it and and figuring out the arguments and listening to this side of the camp and that side of the camp. And, a matter of fact, for one person I know of, that was their downfall. They spent so much time studying the lie, it began to sound like truth. It began to make sense, and it began, it began to seduce him into believing it, and next thing you know, suddenly God's word sounded like nonsense. Suddenly, he was, he was deceived by these deceiving spirits, and he was drawn away. And, and so we have to be careful that in our effort to know God's word and be Bereans and be well-studied, that we don't get caught up spending time on things other than the truth. Yes, it's good to know what's out there. It's good to know what the enemy uses as common tools. But you know what? We need to know the truth more than anything. Amen? We need to know what's right to know what's wrong, not know what's wrong to know what's right. We don't have to experience or be experts on evil. We need to be experts on godliness. We need to pursue with all of our hearts holiness and pursuing God. And that other stuff will be obvious. It will become more apparent the more we know the truth. But people get caught up in these deceiving spirits and these false doctrines and they get seduced and drawn away. They are seduced by the dark side. You know, um, looking it up, Wikipedia estimates that there's over 4,200 religions in the world today. 4,200. How crazy is that? That many weird different versions of, of God or who he is or our existence or Karma, or whatever it may be. All these different, many of them, many of them fall under the Christian umbrella, saying, calling themselves Christian or a version of it. Um, there are a lot of deceiving spirits, and we have to be careful and aware. We have to pursue the truth. In these following verses, Paul's going to warn us about two kinds of people those who err on the side of liberty and those who err on the side of legalism. And we know that God has called us to walk that line uh, in the middle following the Spirit and the law of love. But let's read on in verse 2. It says, "...and such teachings come through hypocritical liars, those consciences, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron." So number one, we're warned about these people who have no moral compass. Their consciences are gone, are toast. They've, they do whatever feels good to them. There's no standard These are the liberals, the free thinkers, that are those who are uninhibited by anything other than what feels good to their senses. Romans eight reminds us about those who are carnally minded and warns us about them, doesn't it? it? Says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so, first of all, he's warning us about people who whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. How does a conscience get seared with a hot iron? How? Well, you play with fire, you get burned, right? Well, what is a fire? It's sin. It's sin. He's talking about sin here. And the more you play with it, the more you dabble with it, the more you're burned by it, you get desensitized, you get numb. And it's a perfect picture of what sin does to us. And we know that sin ultimately leads to death, right? And that's what James tells us. And this is saying to avoid those people. Avoid those people who, have, who aren't shocked by evil. We want to be shocked by evil. We want to be sensitive to those things, the things that God would have us be sensitive to, the things that he hates, we should hate. You know, it's one of the things that I, I, can, I am concerned about for my children is walking the balance between sheltering them and preparing them for the world. You know what I mean? If you've raised a child or you've mentored someone, you're always struggling with, well, do I let them fall or do I guard them? Do I walk with them through this or do I let them... Uh, walk through it on their own so that they can um, can grow. Or, or where, do, where do I let go and where do I hang on? That's a tough line to walk. It's tough to know sometimes. And I tend to err on the side of, of of sheltering and training because of this very spiritual concept that I believe is very strongly taught in God's Word. You know what? I could let them go out and experience the world and figure that's the best way to prepare them for facing the world. But, you know what? Then they become numb. Then they become desensitized. Then the things that they they hear about these things, they see these things, and it doesn't bother them. It doesn't shock them. I want them to be shocked. I want them to be bothered. When they hear someone cussing like a sailor, it should disturb them. Because that's God's heart. God's heart is evil, evil, evil. uh, He hates evil, right? Uh, I want my children to have that sensitivity. I want them to see violence and and be abhor it. I want them to see sexual perversion and and be disgusted by it and feel great pity and compassion for those who are are, are caught up in it or lost in it. Does that make sense? That's what God wants our hearts to be like. We need to guard our hearts, that we would be sensitive to those things, to not get numb, to not allow our consciences to be seared. So we stay away from and not allow ourselves to become like those who are seared. Stay away from them. He's first warned about them. Verse 3, the second person, people who forbid to marry in order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everyone, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. You know, Satan has hijacked so much of what God has made to be good, hasn't he? We look around this world And there's so much that has been perverted and twisted and bent for evil. And sometimes we as Christians can get really caught up in what he's warning about here, where we're just, everything's about what we don't do. All we're focused on is we don't do this and we don't do that and we can't touch this and we can't go here. And we're all caught up in that. And then we forget that God God is the creator and the originator. And in, in this specific passage, he's talking about food. Because in that culture and in that day and time, that was a really big issue. Things offered to idols or unclean things in, in, the, in the Jewish culture. They had all of those things that were considered unclean and you were unclean or unholy if you ate or touched those things. And as a Christian, as, as those set free in Christ, they weren't to be bound by that stuff anymore. And so what Paul's talking about here is in that day and time, we need to remember context here is, is really critical in understanding this a little deeper. Right at that point in time... For the first time ever, Gentiles, non-Jews, got to have a relationship with God. They no longer was just the God of the Jews. It was the God of all. It was Jesus came to bring salvation to all, the Jew and the Gentile. To the Jew first, but then also to the Gentile. It was to everyone. And for the the first time, the Jews are kind of wrestling with this. Well, how's that right? I mean, we should kind of make them follow some of our laws and our traditions so they can be required to do all that we do, circumcision, all this stuff. And Paul is warning against that, particularly relating to things that are eaten. He said, listen, God created all these things and they're meant to be received with thanksgiving. Don't get caught up in that anymore and don't put that legalistic law on your new brothers and sisters in Christ. The Jews wanted to impose all these laws on some of these new believers here in Ephesus. And Paul is challenging Timothy, saying, listen, listen, do not let that happen. Now understand here that knowing the context when it says that that all things are to be received with thanksgiving, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. Understand context here. What is not being said is that as long as you give thanks for it, it's all good. That doesn't give us the free license to just go, oh, well, as long as I thank God for it, I can do whatever I want, right? And just say, oh, yeah, God, thanks for... Thanks for this. Uh, you know, obviously, we have certain guidelines and boundaries. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're made to take, meant to take care of them. There are things that we know are unholy and are, are not fitting of a Christian. We're still meant to shun those things. We don't give thanks for ungodly things, we don't give thanks for things that aren't becoming of a Christian. Understand the context here. We're told to be sober minded and to not allow our minds to be altered or put into a place where we cannot honor and serve the Lord with a clear mind. 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to spend some time in there if you want to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33 helps clarify this idea of receiving and giving thanks for what God has given and the fact that he has created things to be given uh, and received uh, in a way that honors him but understanding the limitations of that as Christians. So digging deeper into what does it mean to walk as a Christian in this love of freedom and love that we have. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. Let's read there together. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Uh, So we see here we're held to a higher standard now. It isn't just about what I do to please God. under the old covenant. uh, There were these sacrifices, right? There were these laws. There was unclean things and clean things. There was all these rules that had to follow. And it really didn't consider the other person's conscience. That wasn't really part of the equation. And now suddenly, under the law of liberty and the law of love, under Christ as new creatures in him, we're held to actually a higher standard. We many times talk about the freedom we have in Christ, don't we? We talk about how we're not under this bondage anymore. Yes, that's true. But actually, we're held to an even higher standard. The law of love. Which means, and when Paul talks about farther on, he clarifies this even further. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no question for conscience sake. In other words, don't nitpick everything. Don't try and figure out if... This meat was, was at some point prayed over to an idol or at some point came from some place that you wouldn't approve of. Listen, God provided it. God made it. Accept it with thanksgiving. The earth is the Lord's. Verse, uh, Reading on in verse 26, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner, so if you're invited to dinner to an unbeliever's house and you desire to go, eat whatever set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not for your own conscience, but for that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God to give no offense, either to the Jews or the Greeks, or to the Church of God, just as I also please men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but for the profit of many that they may be saved. So he clarifies the motivation, it's really important at the end to catch that last part. When he talks about pleasing all men and giving no offense, it's easy to read that at first glance and go, So am I supposed to be a people pleaser? Am I supposed to be so wrapped up and concerned with what everybody thinks about me? and about what I do, that I'm constantly trying to make people happy. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about for the sake of the gospel for this and for the sake of your witness and for the sake of the edification of the body. Those key things right there. Is, is what I'm doing right now going to hinder someone's walk with the Lord? Is what I'm doing right now going to blow my witness because this person's perception of it? Is it going to look bad if I go to this place or if I do this thing? And in this culture, and for example, uh, Paul talks about in one passage where if it stumbles my brother that I eat meat, I'll never eat meat again, even though he just clarified that there's no problem with eating meat. But he says, I'm not going to eat it again. I'm not going to go to In-N-Out ever again if it prevents the gospel. I know, God forbid, right? I see some people shaking. No, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but seriously, would you take it to that level? If someone was so bent out, out of shape about eating meat for some reason, in, let's just put it in today's context. Um, you know, someone who believes that no Christian should eat meat, and yeah, they're wrong. You know, they they don't they're missing something. Okay, I'll just tell you that right now. Nothing wrong with eating meat, but if someone won't even talk to you about God because you're sitting there completely disregarding their 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 concern or their belief and shoving down a burger in their face, um, are you living according to the law of love? No you are not. That's a tough thing to come to grips with. But are we really concerned about others' salvation and their walk with the Lord enough to give up something that was perfectly okay to do for their sake? That's the law we live according to now. That's what it means to walk as a Christian. We're not just concerned about us anymore. We're not just concerned about what's okay for me to do in clean conscience anymore. It's about my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and my witness in the world. That's what we're supposed to be most concerned about, is how can I win the people to Christ? How can I build people, the body of Christ? How can I raise people up? Even if they're not in the same place I am, maybe they're weak in this area, and I'm not. But for their sake, I'll be weak in this area. Does that make sense? You see what he's saying there? That's tough. That's tough. In other words, it doesn't make sense. So let's so talk about it a little more. The idea is, let's, I'll, I'll give you a, an even more extreme example. Um, a restaurant that has a bar. Okay, I've, I've never struggled with alcoholism. I've never drank for that matter. I could sit at a bar all day and not be stumped. wouldn't bother me. I'd just have a cheeseburger and a water. And I would never be tempted to go too far with alcohol because I've never had a problem with it. Not, so there's for me, there's nothing wrong with me going and sitting at the bar in that restaurant and ordering the Sprite and whatever it is I want to have. However... If I'm going with someone I know has struggled with alcohol, for me to do that would be terribly insensitive. It'd be completely inconsiderate of their weakness, of of the fact that maybe that would stumble them to see me sitting there. Or maybe to have even a glass of wine. Is there anything wrong with me having one glass of wine? Not according to scripture. But if someone has struggled with alcohol, and I know that it might stumble them, I have no business drinking a glass of wine. Does that make sense? Uh, if, I, if I'm following this, what he, Paul is saying here, if I'm considering others above myself, if I'm walking according to the law of love. Now, I could do that. I have liberty in it, and I in my clear, clean conscience before God, and there's all kinds of things we could go through and list, but even so far as, even in our modern day, eating meat, something as extreme as that. I know Seventh-day Adventists and some people who believe it's completely wrong to eat meat, and if I want to keep an open communication with them, if I want to continue to be able to talk to them about the Lord and hopefully bring them to a real understanding of who God is, I'm not going to eat meat with them. I will eat vegetables when I hang out with them if I want to not offend them and hinder not hinder the gospel. That's a tough thing to do. <laughs> but that's what he's talking about here. Are we willing to walk according to the law of love rather than the law of just purely walking in liberty? So let's swing back over to 1 Timothy. Hopefully that was clear and made sense. I encourage you to study it more. For each person, I think it's very particular. For each person may have different things that they struggle with or feel strong with. Some things are very clearly not of God. Other things aren't necessarily wrong, but they can lead to stumbling or be a distraction or cause people to be uh, hindered in their walk with the Lord. So seek the Lord on that, but understand that God calls us to consider others before ourselves in that way, both the body of Christ and our witness. So picking up back in verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6, if you instruct the brother in these in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. So he's talking about avoiding and rejecting rumors here and holding fast to good doctrine. That's what's going to nourish us. That's what's going to strengthen us. Those words of faith of the good doctrine. In other words, he's talking about don't get distracted and caught up in rumors and gossip. You know, again, think social media and Facebook. So many distractions. So many issues. Everybody's got an opinion, don't they? It's amazing how brave people are on social media. Incredibly brave. But with so many things you see said on there, would they say it to your face? No? Are you kidding me? It's 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 interesting because I've seen this happen. I've seen people say stuff to me, like on Facebook, send me messages about something I posted, something pretty harsh and nasty. But then when they see me in person, it's all oh hey, how are you doing? And they they you know, they would never talk to me that way in person. But suddenly on social media they'll do whatever. But the point here is We have even more exposure and distractions than they did in that day. At least in that day, all they had to worry about was the people next to them talking to them. Now we're inundated on our phones, computers everywhere we go, notifications, people sending us messages. Everybody's got an opinion about something. And we get so caught up in rumors, in uh, in news, in politics, and we're told not to get distracted by that stuff. That's a waste of life. It's a waste of life. What we're supposed to focus on is the things that we can have an impact on. Our neighbors, our community, our brothers and sisters in Christ, people we're truly investing in and receiving from, people we're discipling and being discipled by. That's what we're supposed to spend our time on and focus on. Things that we actually intend to do something about. Not useless chatter, useless arguments, getting all caught up in debates that at the end of the day, we both walk away angry and nothing fruitful happened. How many times does that happen? We get so caught up. I get caught up. I love to argue, quite frankly. I love to debate stuff. I, I enjoy that. And I get caught up in it. And, and I realize what a waste of time it is. And so much of the time. I have one of the things, how many of you ever realized you're never going to win an argument on Facebook? Do you realize that? If you don't realize that, you need to realize that. You will not win an argument. You're never going to convert someone on Facebook. You're never going to get someone to say, oh my gosh, you are so right. I've never gotten that message, have you? (laughs) I've never gotten that message. And yet, we go down that rabbit trail. We waste all this time. Pick up the phone and call them if it really is worth talking about. Invite them to lunch. Go have coffee. Invest in them and show them you care rather than getting sucked into these fables, these profane uh, distractions, these things. And it says, but rather, verse 7, exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. He says, exercise yourself. That sounds like work, doesn't it? It's like training. You know, uh, in Scripture we see that we are called both athletes and warriors in Scripture, aren't we? You relate the Christian walk to running a race. And being an athlete and we're told to run are we told to run to just survive the race is that what we're told to do no he says run as so to obtain the prize in other words run like you're going for the gold well if you're going to compete in an olympic event or any kind of sports competition and and plan to win it not just kind of make it to the finish line whether you're the 342nd person or not but you plan to take the gold are you going to train Absolutely. How hard are you going to train? Harder than everybody else, probably, if you really want it, right? That's how we're supposed to run. As warriors in a battle, do soldiers train? Or do they just kind of show up on the day of battle and see what happens? <laughs> how good would that battle go? Not so well. I wouldn't want to be on that in that army. That would just be, uh, you'd be a bullet stopper and that's about it. Um, they train and they train and they push themselves to their limits. As Christians, we are told to train, to exercise ourselves towards what? Godliness. We just talked. About, he just talked about how there's that mystery of godliness, and you know, he's now giving us a path to walk on. He's giving us some running shoes for this. He's saying, hey, "Listen, you need to work on this. It's going to take effort. It's going to take planning. It's going to be." Godliness doesn't happen by accident. Surprise, surprise. You don't just, you know, you receive Christ and he zaps you with godliness. How awesome would that be? Now he does give us a spirit, right? Where we now have a conscience and now we're sensitive to the things of God and things matter to us and suddenly we find, whoa, I don't want to talk like that anymore. I don't want to do those things anymore. And God does work in us, right? But as we continue to progress, we actually have to work at it. We ha- there's this relationship with God that we have where yes it's a spirit working in and through us but there's a part that we have to play we're told to exercise ourselves towards godliness that means prayer that means fellowship that means discipleship that means giving and receiving it that means seeking it out that means investing in each other it takes work it means looking at your life like we're talking about and looking at 2016 and going man where did i blow it where did I go astray? Or did I just kind of miss the whole year and not even pay attention? And if that's the case, it means we need to go, well, what should I be working on? Where do I struggle? Where am I weak? It's, it's about being honest. The Bible talks about how we can deceive, our, deceive ourselves, doesn't it? In James, it says, it talks about ungodly people, people who are hearers of the word rather than just doers. Rather than doers, they're hearers only. And it says, do not be one of those because you are what? Deceiving yourself. We so easily deceive ourselves. So it starts with being honest with ourselves about where we're at, about what we struggle with, where our weaknesses are, and being willing for God to work on it, for us to take purposeful steps to exercise towards godliness. That means we have to care enough to make some changes. It means we need to be different at the end of 2017 than we were at the beginning of 2017. We should, people should be able to meet us at the beginning of the year, have a nice long conversation, and then meet us on Christmas and go, oh my gosh, you're a different person. Right? That's, if, if we're progressing, if we're growing, they should go, man, it's amazing how, how what God's done in your life since we talked at the beginning of the year. I don't know about you, but that's what I would love to hear. That's what we should strive to hear. Do we live with purpose and intention in that? Verse 10, this is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially those who believe. This is obviously a clear reinforcement of John 3.16. And of so many verses we know that Christ died for the world, for everyone. He is the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe, obviously, It's effective for those who actually accept it and receive it. For those who believe, for those who receive Christ, well, that's who it matters most to because it actually has taken effect. But the sacrifice, the payment was for how many people? All people. We see it right here in verse 10. And Verse 11. Suggest these things. Oh, wait. Command and teach these things. In other words, speak it boldly. Declare it. Don't only... And we're supposed to exhort and encourage one another. Remember, he's talking to a pastor here. He's talking to Timothy. So he's giving him some instruction from a, pa- instruction from a pastor's perspective. However, this applies to all Christians. Do you, know, do you realize that as fellow believers, the moment I tell you, yes, I'm a Christian too, I've just given you permission to rebuke me from time to time, to exhort me from time to time, to call me out when I need to be called out because I've just, I've just identified myself as a child of God. Well, a child of God is marked by certain things, aren't they? They walk a certain way. They are pursuing things of God. Well, if I'm not doing that, and I tell you I'm a Christian, I've officially given you permission to hold me accountable. That's what it means to be a Christian. Didn't realize that's what you're signing up for, did you? That is what it means. And and so next time someone calls you out on something or challenges you on something or next time you see someone who is clearly uh, doing something contrary to God's word, know that God has called you to, in love, speak the truth to them. Tell them what they need to hear. We need brothers and sisters, not friends. We need to stop just being buddies and being so concerned about liking each other that we care enough to call each other out. We care enough to challenge each other. That's what God's called us to do and that's hard. That's hard. I had to do this with someone just this last week, a fellow Christian of mine, uh, someone I do business with, who says that he wants to represent Christ in his business and in all he does. And yet at the same time, I kept hearing him talk about um, basically speaking evil of people, speaking evil of people and this rumor gossip thing and, and just having a low standard with which he would communicate uh, some things, and and even uh, just just as God's word says, let no corrupt thing proceed out of your mouth. And I was seeing this habit, and I kept avoiding it. And God convicted me of this because I kept avoiding, I kept pretending like it was fine. But it, God kept kind of hitting me in the face with it. It kept coming up, and it eventually got to the point where I couldn't avoid it, and I okay, I got to say something, and I challenged him on it, and I sent him some scripture. And I, and I just pleaded with him in love as a fellow brother. This is not fitting. This isn't what we're supposed to look like. And I got to tell you, I was so blessed by his response. He, he wrote me a letter back thanking me and just saying how blessed he was that I cared enough to call him out. And I was not expecting that. I was expecting a bit of a fight. I was expecting our friendship to be torn. And he was... And I was just so blessed by how he received it. And I was challenged by his humility and how he received it. And so I encourage you, uh, you, you don't know what you're missing out on by just trying to be everybody's friend in the body of Christ. We need to be more for each other. And that's what we're meant to do is sharpen and challenge each other. It says, command and teach these things. Sanctification is a process. Verse 12, it says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And this could also apply not just because you're young, but because you're old or because you're uh, anything. It doesn't really matter where you're from, uh, how old or young you are, and not just physically old or physically young, but how old or young you are in the Lord. If God has spoken to you or is leading you in something, be bold and take a stand. Be an example, verse 12, for the believers in speech and conduct in love, in faith, and in purity. Well, wow. Again, that's a pretty tall order. But that is what we are, as Christians, to be pursuing. It's not what we will arrive at. Remember, we're no, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm not perfect yet, and I know I'm not going to be, right? We know this. But are we pursuing it? That's really the question. Does, can people tell that we're pursuing this? That we actually care? That we actually have standards? That we actually have conviction about what we believe? We go, no, I don't do these things. I don't talk this way. I don't treat people this way. I don't do business this way because I'm a Christian. Do we have conviction or are we easily swayed by the world and by the influence of it and by the standards of it or by Christians who don't have conviction? Are we pursuing it and is it obvious? That's the point. Commit yourself to it. Exercise in it. And as you exercise, just like physical exercise... We get stronger don 't we get a little stronger, it gets a little easier, and then we push ourselves a little more that 's what growth is all about until I come, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching to do not neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophecy and the when the body of elders laid their hands on you. you know I know for myself it 's been tempting to neglect the gifts and the callings God has given me God has called and gifted each person in the body of christ we've talked about this before if you are a christian if you are a child of god he has a purpose for you not only as a witness in the world but in the body of christ you have a part to play and to seek god in it is what we're called all called to do to grow in it is what we're all called to, to exercise it to step out in that scary way outside of your comfort zone and exercise towards godliness means to exercise those gifts means to see God and to serve Him in places there's need and see what God does and trust Him with the outcome. We're going to try and get through the end here. Be diligent, verse 15, in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. Not partially, not sort of, kind of, not some of the time. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Wow. So a big challenge a big challenge and so my encouragement to you is are you making progress are you growing do you look back at the last year the last 10 years whatever it may be and go wow look at what God's done look at how I've grown look at the things I've worked on or do you look at last year and go you know what I kind of I kind of just lived my life and didn't really pursue anything you know because that may be the case and I've had periods of time like that. I'm not saying I'm some exception to the rule. I'm challenging you because God has challenged me with this. To live on purpose. To pursue God on purpose. To exercise and have a plan and to make it a priority to grow in Christ. We have to make it a priority. We have to make it a purposeful endeavor. And again, I'm not just talking about you know, reading God's word, prayer, yes, that's foundational. Make a priority for those things. Discipleship, interacting with the body of Christ. Yes, foundational. make a priority of those things. But look at your job life, your social life, what you do when you're out and about, your habits, your driving. Look at all of those things and go, am I godly in these areas? Could I grow in these areas? Could I? And write it down, pay attention to it, mark it, and go, I'm going to work on these things this year. I'm going to work on these things tomorrow. I'm going to work on these things this week. Be specific. Be clear. Seek the Lord specifically to work in your life in the ways you need to grow. Don't just be kind of generally, yeah, I want to grow. What do, you, what do you mean you want to grow? How? What is God showing you? Seek Him. Ask Him to show you. It's kind of a scary question to ask. But just like David did in Psalm 139, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. We've got to pray that prayer sometimes and ask God to show us where we're blowing it, where our witness is getting blown, where how we're interacting with the body of Christ is being unfruitful or even damaging and, and, and be honest and go, okay, God, I'm, let's work on this together. Let's take this on and tomorrow I'm going to do a little better and it's a one day, small increments at a time. that never underestimate what God can do if you'll just give him a little peace and then another little piece, and a little more. And next thing you know, you're not the same person. You, don't, you don't, almost can't recognize yourself in this area or that area. And that's how God grows us. That's how we grow. That's how we mature. That's how we walk as pilgrims and make progress in this life. And so 2017 is an exciting opportunity to start fresh, to take inventory, to look at what God would call each of us to, and to step up, and to move forward with Him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for the challenge that it is to us. Lord, I thank you that living a life in pursuit of you is, is no picnic. It's not, it's not some boring ride. Lord, it is something where we can expect exciting things. We can expect things beyond our control and beyond our capability if we will allow you to do that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live with purpose, to realize you've called us each specifically to grow, to exercise in godliness. Lord, you've called us to look and set up those Ebenezer stones and to remember who you are and what you're capable of. And you've called us to be that example to the world that when they look at us, Lord, may they see our progress. May they see that we're growing and pursuing you in everything. Not just that we read the Bible and that we go to church the, the way that I sell insurance, the way that I communicate financial concepts, the way that I drive my car, the way that uh, we build a house or do whatever it is you called us to do, somehow points back to you because of how we do it and because of why we do it because you've created us for that purpose So I pray that your spirit would just overwhelm and fill and direct each person here Myself included. And we give you the rest of this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.